Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of CH Network Presents, where we have conversations about the kind of questions that people wrestle with when they're exploring the Catholic faith and uh, wondering if they should become a part of it. Uh, I know that's many of you listening and watching right now. I'm Matt Swaim. I'm Outreach Manager for the Coming Home Network. And if you're someone dealing with issues like the one we're discussing today, please come visit us at chnetwork.org. We have tons of resources there. And especially if you're looking for support from others who are going through or have been through the same situations that you're going through, then definitely come check out our online community. It's free. Uh, that's at community.chnetwork.org. And today we get to look at some stuff related to the role of women in the church. And while that's something I had questions about, let's just say the stakes weren't quite as high on those questions for me because, frankly, I am a dude. And I know for some of you who are considering the Catholic Church, understanding her teachings on these questions is really a make-or-break thing. And uh, we want to treat them fairly and seriously. So with that in mind, I wanted to have someone on who I know did a lot of wrestling with this mm-hmm. uh, particular topic on her way into the church. And uh, actually, it may be more accurate to say she wrestled with a whole range of topics related to this issue. <laughs> and that's Dr. Abigail Favalli. She's Dean of the College of Humanities and Professor of English at George Fox University, also the author of the book, Into the Deep, An Unlikely Catholic Conversion. Mm-hmm. Dr. Favalli, good to talk to you again. Hi, Matt. It's good to be here. Yeah, and I encourage people to go see your Journey Home episode uh, because it's outstanding, and you cover a lot of stuff that we just don't have time to get to today. Uh, But I wanted to maybe start by looking at what your own religious upbringing was because Mm -hmm. that might help set the stage for what it was that caused you to engage Catholic teaching in a particular way. Sure, yeah. I was raised in evangelical Protestantism, um, and uh, in the the Mormon belt, I would call it. So I went to a different kinds of evangelical churches, but I think the the basic religious culture of my upbringing was pretty mainstream, non-denominational evangelicalism, you know, like focus on the family type stuff. Um, and so in that context, um, there was just basically an understanding that, you know, women um, would shouldn't be pastors, um, Sometimes there would be more conservative takes, like women shouldn't even teach men at all as soon or boys older than 12. Um, I don't think my parents quite had that strong of a view, but certainly some of the churches we attended did. Um, so ministry was really close to women unless it was ministering to other women or children. Um, and there was certainly a sense that women should be submissive and obedient to their husbands. And aside from that, honestly, there just wasn't a lot of talk about women at all. You know, like I didn't hear sermons about women. Um, it was almost like women were just kind of in the margins. You know, they were doing a lot of work for the church and for the home, but like it wasn't really recognized and it certainly wasn't kind of in the front. And one particular church we went to, um, the pastor's wife wouldn't even like speak inside the sanctuary. So that was kind of a real hardliner type church and not, you know, then we went to like a more charismatic church and, you know, then you'd have like women like suddenly prophesying out of nowhere. So there was a little range there, but basically the idea that women should be pastors was like off the table. Well, I know enough about you and I hopefully, I hope people know enough about you just from the little things they've seen about you that that probably sparked a little bit of rebellion in in you (laughs) in a few different ways. Um, So what did that come out as, as you were, you know, kind of growing up and, and trying to figure out your own way of looking at all these things? Yeah, I think I, I think, 
The question of women and women's roles was an important one. I think because I have a personality that in some ways is stereotypically feminine, but in some ways is not. And so I have a side um, to my personality that's a little more like competitive, more driven. And I would often find myself in all male spaces, like the only girl philosophy major or the only girl on the soccer team in high school, that kind of thing. And so I had a sense that like, I like being a girl. I'm proud of being a girl, but yet I didn't really, I wasn't really getting like a positive sense of what that was um, from my my kind of religious subculture. So when I went to college, I went to an evangelical institution where I currently teach. And that's when I really began to to dig into some of these questions. I think there were parts of the Bible that um, suddenly jumped out to me like First Corinthians 11, for example, particularly that vo- that verse that says, woman is the glory of man and man is the glory of God. You know, I had no, I had no context for what that meant. And it just seemed to imply a very clear hierarchy between women and God. And I thought, well, something, something seems off about that. Um, and so then I tried to ask my professors and, you know, he didn't, <laughs> he didn't really like, he just kind of like, well, let's talk about something else, you know? And so then I, um, I went to the yeah. library, you know, as people in the olden days used to do. This was before Google even. So, um, and that's when I started reading a lot of feminist theology and feminist bi- biblical criticism. And I thought, oh, this, this is what I've been looking for. This will give me all the answers that I'm seeking. So I didn't intend to bring this up, but now that you've brought it up, I'm actually curious about your experience related to this. So uh, Time Magazine had an article um, by, I think it was a feminist scripture critic. I don't know that I want to say scholar for a couple of reasons, mostly because I'm not sure. Uh, But her thing was um, about how she had seen in her evangelical Christian upbringing Jezebel, the story of Jezebel, Mm -hmm. as an example of why women shouldn't be in leadership because here's an example of Jezebel who's in leadership and things go very badly. And then she goes on to um, basically use that to say that the Bible has created this template for how to keep women out of power by showing bad cases. Now, of course, my immediate uh, thing was like, what about Deborah, the just judge who restores 40 years of peace in Israel and her buddy Jael who drives a tent peg through Sisera's head, right, and saves the nation. Um, But it struck me that, you know, people who are fundamentalists read the Bible that way, mm-hmm. right? And people who are anti-fundamentalists who don't believe the Bible is a legit book read the Bible that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, but you were reading it and trying to find, like, what is a Christian feminism? Like a Christian mm-hmm. feminism, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, and that's really true. So I think, I think one of the problems in this conversation is that it often ends up being a cherry picking contest, right? Because you can cherry pick Jezebel and you can be like, ooh, women in leadership are bad. Well, maybe it's bad women in leadership are bad, you know, like Jezebel. I think there's a work, lot more examples you know? of bad male leadership in the Bible. It's yeah. just me thinking off the top of my exactly, head. Exactly, so. right? So you could you could cherry pick male examples too. And like you mentioned, there's Deborah, there's other examples. So Esther, you know, so women being in a position of leadership, um, there's good examples. There's bad examples, right? I mean, that's that's one of the things about scripture is it's if you take scripture as a whole, you can't you can cherry pick you can t- you can cherry pick to argue like women should not be leaders, and then you can also cherry pick to argue that women should be leaders. But 
you know, as a Catholic, I'm like, we got to take the whole, the whole burrito, you know, of scripture. So what does the whole burrito of scripture say? Um, and I know we're kind of, I don't know if we're skipping outside of my like story narrative now to more Catholic. We're wherever you want to go with this, uh, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, but I think it is important to, uh, you know, while we're saying this, first of all, mixing burritos and cherries is quite the metaphor. I'm hungry. This time of day. Uh, I'm fasting. It happens. Oh, um, but but talk a little bit about what you saw in in Christian feminism, like what you thought the answer was. Yeah. Um, yeah. Of how to reconcile all, the, all those things, because I want to get to the Catholic thing, obviously, um, mm-hmm. for our people who are on that trajectory. But what did you see as kind of like the way to reconcile all that stuff when you were in Christian feminism? Right. So at first, when I had, when I would say I was still evangelical, like an evangelical feminism, I very much still took scripture seriously as this is the word of God. Um, this is our source of authority and we need to correctly interpret it. Right. And so then I began to learn more about, you know, hermeneutics and exegesis and let's look at these tricky passages and what does the Greek word mean here and how is it being used? What are the connotations? Um, so I started to do that more careful textual work um, while still very much having this sense of reverence for scripture and like this idea that scripture spoke the truth. But at some point that shifted. So over the course of my four years as an undergrad, and I think the more I was immersed in feminist thought, the more I just absorbed what we call a, a hermeneutics of suspicion. So a way of seeing or a way of reading things that is ultimately suspicious, like from a the feminist perspective, it's like you're on the hunt for patriarchy. You know, you, you are suspicious of scripture because it was written by men. You're suspicious of Christianity because it's patriarchal, right? So I adopted that way of seeing. And so that really shifted my relationship to Christianity, to the Bible, and to any sense of authority. So I think that was, that was the big shift again. And it wasn't even so much a conscious shift as it was kind of a, a more subtle shift. Where basically I moved from more of an evangelical, you know, the Bible is God's word perspective to the Bible is a text that's flawed and ultimately created by human beings. Um, and I didn't really have a sense of religious authority in my life anymore. So um, that was, I think, a big shift that by the time I graduated from college, I was more in that suspicious space. Well, that's very interesting from an academic perspective, but um, you're not a collection of ideas and arguments. You're like a human being, <laughs> right? So like in terms of like you as a Christian, like, or you as a person who wanted to like know truth and at some point wanted to know God, like where is this taking you? Well, it's it's impossible to love or trust something that you're deeply suspicious of. And so by that time, I, I had really the the kind of the the sort of feminism that I had adopted had really become a wall around my heart. I, again, I don't think I realized that at the time. Um, and so by the time I was in this phase, I wasn't practicing my faith at all. Honestly, like I wasn't praying, I wasn't going to church. I would occasionally go to church, and then I would just get angry, you know, and then I would leave. <laughs> Um, but there, I had really lost the sense that I had lost this. I don't know. I think in Christianity, there's a sense in which you should kind of be suspicious of yourself, right? And have this sense of humility. Um, but I had, I was not suspicious of myself and my own views and my perspective. Those I took, 
You know, I was like, no, I know the truth. Um, and maybe there is no truth. That's the truth that I know, right? <laughs> um, so I think yeah. by that time, even though intellectually I was still very much interested in these ideas, I was reading about them, writing about them, studying them in graduate school, um, there was no real embodiment of the faith in my life. I wasn't living it out in in any real way. All right. So I'm trying to get all the pieces in place to set up like the major questions I want to ask you. Okay. <laughs> because because you're you're creating some really interesting, I think, sort of setups for for answering a lot of the questions that people in our membership okay. are dealing with. But Great. but the the um I guess to shift the conversation, how on earth with all that in the mix did you start aiming towards the Catholic Church? Because from both a Christian feminist perspective or just even a secular feminist perspective, as well as like a fundamentalist perspective, that's like that's like the opposite of the answer, right? Yeah. I mean, it's the, yeah. that's like the worst possible world for both the fundamentalist camp that you came from and the feminist camp that you were going to. So yeah. what what opened that door? Yeah, right. Catholicism is either the whore of Babylon or like the patriarchy. <laughs> um, so another thing that was happening in my undergraduate years was more of a sacramental awakening. So I, I first, I began going to a small Anglican church and experiencing liturgy, the saints. Um, so there was, there was something that attracted me to Catholicism because of those things, even when I was an undergrad. But because I was simultaneously getting more and more immersed in feminism, the question of women's ordination became like, it was just like a deal breaker for me. Like I can remember having this conversation with a friend who's a really good friend now. He was converting to Catholicism at the time when we were undergrads. And I remember, and, and I remember like we were at the printer and I was like, I really wish I could become Catholic, but I just can't because they don't ordain women. Like that was just, it was like a, do not pass, do not pass go kind of thing. So, um, and that, that really kept me a, away from Catholicism for about a decade. I would say that, that perspective, um, because there was something that attracted me to it. I think actually the, the embodied, the embodiedness of Catholicism was very attractive. And the fact that the, there's, you know, now as a Catholic, I see how Catholic Christianity preserves both the feminine and the masculine aspects of the faith. So in the type of Christianity I grew up in, you know, it was men preaching predominantly male language for God or entirely male language for God, only stories about men. There's no Mary. There's no iconography. I mean, Mary might, you know, she's in the little like you know, nativity set or something, but that was it. Like no one really talked about her. Um, there are no saints. There's no idea of the church as our mother, right? So all the kind of feminine aspects of the faith had pretty much just been lopped off. And so without that, there was this imbalance, right? And then the, the masculine aspects of the faith became almost like overbearing and deafening. And then when I went into feminism, I pretty much did the opposite of that, right? I like rejected masculine language for God. I kind of rejected um, the the masculine aspects of the faith. And I tried to just have this very like woman-centered version of Christianity, but it was just the mirror image of what I'd been raised with. And so what I realized in Catholicism is like there's this fullness there, right? You you and you experience this fullness if you walk into a beautiful Catholic 
space. If you walk into a church or a cathedral, a cathedral, you'll just immediately see male and female bodies all over the place, right? And if you're in mass, you'll hear like these, this beautiful music of masculine and feminine voices intertwined. And so that's what I discovered, I think, as a Catholic. But in this period of my life, I was attracted to that fullness and that embodied sense of Catholicism, the sacramentality, the saints. But I was like, no, no, no. Like my, I had these like, you know, kind of dogmatic feminist beliefs that, um, that kept me away from Catholicism. Yeah, it's it's interesting because this is where I want to really bring in um, that hermeneutic of suspicion. Because I think that for for a lot of people that get stuck at various points along the way, and I think the the questions like you know the ordination of women or the role of women in the church or the the patriarchal hierarchy, um, I think that's in the same kind of category as. Well, for me, the hierarchy in general, um, you know, coming from my Christian punk rock world, right? Like I didn't believe, I believed in a completely decentralized Christianity. Uh, so, you know, the hermeneutic of suspicion had to be at play for anybody who had any kind of leadership role in anything, right? Because of some experiences that I'd had with poor leadership or hypocrisy. I, I mean, I think it goes for, for a whole lot of issues besides just feminism um, and just the question of, you know, can women be priests? But I, w- I wonder if, like, that Mary thing was, like, a big part of what swung the balance for you. Because, like, f- like you, for me, she was, like, basically invisible, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't, like, later when I was becoming Catholic and somebody mentioned that Mary's in the upper room at Pentecost, I'm like, no, that's a Catholic uh, invention, you know, whatever. And then I go back and read it and, like, there, there she is, She's right? There. Like, actually in the Bible, mm-hmm. I'm like, who snuck her in the in my Bible when I wasn't looking? Like, um, and all kinds of stuff like that. Like, I, did Mary play a major factor in you for sort of realizing that, like, maybe there's another way to see the power of women in the life of the church than just like a Marxist kind of reading, I suppose. Yeah. Yes, I mean, I think when I was in my hardcore feminist phase, Mary appealed to me. But as this sort of symbol or archetype, not as like a real person that I could have a relationship with who could be my mother. And when I became Catholic, I, I was very much drawn to Mary, but I had to kind of relearn who she is. Um, I had, I had made, um, you know, kind of a caricature of her, I think. And so I had to, and I still had some like Protestant, you know, I remember having a lot of anxiety at first when I became Catholic, like about like praying to Mary, like, am I praying to her in the right way? Am I praying to her too much? I I still had this kind of like, I was like hand wringing, like, you know, oh, maybe I love her too much, you know? And so it's taken me, you know, a few years to kind of get over that. And now I'm just like, you know, it, it doesn't bother me anymore at all. Um, But I remember at first, actually, when I, this was in maybe my first year of first year or two of becoming Catholic, I actually remember praying and asking Christ that he would show me his mother, right? So even, because I knew like I, I I was drawn to her, but yeah, I, I also knew that I had to get past my own preconceptions of who she was. And so I, you know, I, it, it's this interesting way, like Christ brought me closer to Mary and then Mary has brought me so much closer to Christ than I ever thought possible, honestly, as a Protestant. Yeah. Um, 
so I have another question related to Mary, um, specifically kind of dialed in on the feminist, because Mary is a virgin and mother. And like, in some ways, like that's the two worst things you can be in a post-sexual revolution world, mm-hmm. right? Yep. If you're a woman, <laughs> like is a virgin mm-hmm. and a mother and or, uh, and she's both, right? She's both of those things. So, mm-hmm. I mean, was, was that aspect of who Mary is, um, I mean, did that do anything to what you were thinking about? Yeah, I mean, so that's, oh yeah. So, so the kind of classic feminist read of Mary is she is this, impossible feminine ideal, this kind of fantasy from a man's brain that's imposed upon women that an ordinary woman, women can't help but fail to meet because she's virgin and mother, right? So that's kind of the, the suspicious, the feminist suspicious reading of her. Um, and I think the way I see it now is actually that um, because of Mary's singular role in salvation history, like she is in some ways her, she's able to kind of encompass the range of women's experiences, right? So that, you know, women who are single, um, who are, who are in the religious life, like they can, um, they can connect with her virginity and also understand their own spiritual motherhood. And then for someone in my case, you know, I, there still is a sense, just as there's like spiritual motherhood, I believe there is like spiritual virginity as well. And I don't mean that in the kind of like purity culture thing where you like re-virginize, you know, or whatever, <laughs> like you pray and you've got your like spiritual virginity back or whatever. Um, but I actually mean like, there's this beautiful book that has helped me with a lot of this called The Eternal Woman by Gertrude von Lefort. And so she, she really explores the sacramental meaning of woman. And this was something that really just completely blew my mind when I encountered it because it was, you don't get it at all in feminist thought because they don't really, most feminist thought is very secular, doesn't have a sense of like the divine, you know, the divine realities at all. And then in Protestant thought, most Protestant thought is not sacramental. Um, so this idea of woman as a sign that my, my embodiment as a woman is, is like an icon that points toward divine realities has been just a, an incredibly beautiful and meaningful and life changing idea that I've encountered in Catholicism. But Gertrude von Lefort talks about how woman as a virgin kind of represents like the absolute value of the human being before God. Like there's no kind of contingent value at all like that. And so that's, that's been a way for me to kind of embrace um, the iconography of virgin as well as being a mother in both a biological sense, a literal sense, but also a spiritual sense. I mean, that's what's so wonderful about the Catholic worldview that physical rea- physical realities also have spiritual realities, right? So the, the visible is revealing the invisible. And that's, that's true of woman as well. That's true of femaleness. Um, so that, that sacramental dimension to femaleness has just been really cool. <laughs> well, that's a perfect setup for the next question I had intended to ask you, which is something that it's an Ephesians 5 question, but not in a way that you might think. So, you know, the whole question about husbands love your wives as Christ loved yeah. the church and, you know, gave his life for her. Um, mm-hmm. That's about the only context I consciously recall really hearing the church preached on 
um, using feminine mm-hmm. language. I mean, the occasional hymn, right, would talk about the wedding yeah. of the lamb and, and, and that sort of thing. But um, becoming Catholic, there was like this real, like robust vision of the church as a she yeah. um, and as a mother. Mm-hmm. And in some sense, like even though like the Pope's in charge, like collectively, we're a lady, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a strange absolutely. thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I-, I wonder if you could like speak to that at all, and like if that made any kind of uh, impact on you as you were kind of edging towards Catholicism. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, I remember the first year when I first started going to mass, um, and that oh, shoot—is it Ezekiel? I'm not sure, but it's the Jerusalem, our mother um, passage. Maybe it's Isaiah. Mm, not sure. One of those prophetic texts, but it comes up pretty regularly. Oh, it'll show up in the YouTube comments. I can Okay. Yeah. Somebody will have I her wanna, back. I want to say it's like Isaiah 66 or something. I don't know. I'm not, I don't know if I'm right about that, but basically it's like, um, you know, it describes Jerusalem as a mother who like, you know, has like nurses the nurses us at her breast. And, you know, I, at that time in my life, I, you know, I become a mother for the first time. I was lactating and just like hearing this gorgeous maternal imagery proclaimed during mass in a way that, that seemed to, um, I don't know, added such dignity to my own experience of motherhood and those things that again, I, I never heard those words proclaimed in a, in a church in my upbringing. And I hear it like every year, you know, it's in there because it's one of these, these meaningful Catholic texts. So the, the church as mother has been very meaningful to me. Um, and this, this relates to what I was talking about in terms of the sacramental meaning of maleness and femaleness in, in terms of our roles in, in generation and procreation. Um, because the, the female, like, Female bodies are kind of designed to um, receive life from outside and gestate it and then give birth to it, right? And so that's why femaleness is this beautiful icon of the relationship between humankind and God, right? So God transcends us, but yet we are capable of receiving his life and creating new life from that, making that fruitful. And so that's why the church is described as bride and as mother um, because she she is feminine. And so in that way, all in that sacramental way, every human being is feminine in relation to God, right? In that, in that metaphor. Um, so again, that's something that just adds so much dignity and richness to being a woman. Like I'm just by the fact of of who I am in the world, no matter what I'm doing. No matter what my specific role in society is or the home is, like I'm, I am an, a living icon of humankind in relation to God. I'm a living icon of the church, the bride, um, and that's really wonderful because I think in my upbringing there was so much emphasis on doing. Like, okay, women should do this, men should do this. You know, it's almost like we had separate like chore lists. <laughs> um, but in Catholicism, the, the, the accent shifts to being that who we are already has the sacramental and divine meaning. Um, and then of course we can, we're free be, human beings. So we can kind of choose to live in accord with that sacramental meaning or to live at odds with it. But nonetheless, like 
who we are just by the kinds of bodies we have um, proclaim and point to these divine realities um, that are beyond us. So there's this whole meaning to male and female that goes beyond the temporal, um, which again, only I've only encountered this in Catholicism. Like it's amazing. I feel like there's this huge like treasure box of amazingness in Catholicism that you don't get in secular feminism and you certainly don't get in Protestantism. Yeah, it's it's layers on layers on layers. And so here's the here's the thing that that somebody who's coming from the outside does not get and that is that to be a Catholic is to kind of accept a feminine character like to everything that you do in some ways because what happens when you go up to communion you receive right and then you Mm -hmm. go uh from an outside life giver you receive Mm -hmm. right and then you bear fruit Mm -hmm. out into the like this is why mary is the icon of christianity i mean this is why god chooses to be incarnate through a woman because that's Mm -hmm. the icon of what christianity like is Mm -hmm. like not just it's not just a pretty cool idea that God became man wasn't that neat and special, but it's like, this is like the mystical reality that is taken on some sort of like a physical reality. So, Mm -hmm. and even, I mean, you even see like, you know, throughout the writings of the church, like, so Paul tells the Corinthians that he treated them, um, you know, as infants and he gave them milk and not Mm -hmm. solid food because they were not yet ready for it. That's the kind of thing that like a mom does, right? Mm -hmm. So he's their spiritual father, but in some sense, he's like, Mm -hmm. you know, addressing them using kind of like maternal language because he's speaking not just in his role as a male who is ordained through the apostolic, you know, vision of what it means to be a priest, but also because he's speaking as part of Holy Mother Church. Right. right. I mean, it's this the the whole church is like loaded with this kind of stuff. I know it's really wonderful. Like, yeah, and, and you're right. I mean, every every person who comes to mass, like you're the bride. Like that's your role there is to be a bride, and that's actually what understanding what we're describing the sacramental dimension of maleness and femaleness. Um, that's what changed my view on the priesthood question. Because once I understood that the mass is, it's basically a liturgical drama. It's this nuptial feast. And like I mentioned, you have the gathered people there who are living, you know, who are fulfilling the bride role, but you need a bridegroom, right? So, um, and the bridegroom is a male, right? It's not just neuter. (laughs) It's not like a neutered concept, right? It's a male concept. And so you need a man who can be an icon of a bridegroom, right? Like that's, that's really what it's about. Like it's not about, and this is why it's different than in a Protestant context, because in a Protestant context, the pastor role is like all encompassing, right? So if you say women can't be pastors, that usually means women can't preach at all. Women can't teach. Women can't lead. They can't run a finance committee. I mean, they <laughs> yeah, can't, right. Yeah, they can't they decide can't what elders. we're going to do yeah. with the parking mm-hmm. lot. You, we can't. They can't. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff. It's yeah. it's not. Yeah, it's a very different view than what the priesthood is. Right. You know? Yeah. So then, in the in the Catholic context, a a priest is a very specific role. It's a sacramental role. Like that's really what it's about. Even though, of course, you also have priests who are doing you know parish administration and that kind of thing. But the the primary job of a priest is a sacramental role 
And a big piece of that is to be an icon of Christ as bridegroom in the liturgical drama of the Mass. So once I understood the symbolism that's happening, that's at play in the Mass, I was like, oh, no, that is so beautiful and it needs to be preserved, right? Because if you just if you just say, oh, well, anyone can be a priest, then you lose the symbolism, the embodied symbolism of bridegroom and bride. Um, so that's that's totally shifted my view on it. Um, and the nice thing is, like, as, you know, in Catholicism, because um, the priest role is more specific, there actually isn't, I've been so surprised how, I hate to use the word empowered because it's become such a cliche, but it, I really have have been empowered as a woman to teach, to lead, um, and I have I have been called into positions of leadership, both in the local parish as well as more broadly. You know, I like I got I just got an email recently from a bishop who wants me to come speak to all his schools or all his principals in the diocese. Right, so there's no, there's no like anxiety about me being a woman and teaching um, in that way. So it's really. Once I understood that, that also helped. So when, in a Catholic context, when you say women can't be ordained, it means something very different than in a Protestant context when you say a woman can't be a pastor. Yeah, you're you're basically, in, in that sense, you know, you're getting into questions about like equal pay, right? <laughs> or, or like, you know, that's that's more in the, in the realm of that kind of a conversation than it is for like, what is the priesthood? What's the character of that? You know, because obviously mm-hmm. if if Jesus would have wanted to ordain women as priests at the Last Supper, which is when the Catholic Church teaches these men were ordained to the priesthood, mm-hmm. I mean, Jesus is, it's not because he's afraid of breaking conventions because he's already done, like he's out there hugging lepers and like letting prostitutes mm-hmm. like, wash his feet and eating dinner at tax collector houses. He's not worried about like, um, you know, the conventions. And so he's culturally afraid to ordain priests, which is sometimes the arguments that's out there. But I I do want to get into this just to touch on. Can I actually say something on that point really quick? That's a bad argument anyway, for the reason you pointed out, but also priestesses are very common in the ancient world. All pagan religions have priestesses. So, it wouldn't even. It would have been unconventional in a Jewish context because the Levitical priesthood has always been, or the priesthood has always been limited to men. Um, but it wouldn't have been unconventional for him to do that. Like there was tons of precedent in um, in the ancient world to have priestesses. So many is the fertility yeah. cult that has the priestess. It's true, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but without going too far down this. Uh, because I know it could be like another like hour conversation, but in some ways, all the stuff that we're talking about about the mystical way that you know the church is a woman and the the way that we are all kind of taking on a feminine character by receiving the Eucharist and then bearing that grace that we receive to the world, um, all this stuff about Mary, all this stuff about well, all of it, it helps me kind of understand not from, not from a moral standpoint, um, but from a mystical standpoint why the church cares about the question of contraception in the way that she does mm-hmm. because it's yeah. not merely like a don't do this because it'll cause you to co- commit these other sins it's also like mm-hmm. don't do this because you're cutting off one of the primary ways you have to understand what's really going on here mm-hmm. yeah. um so to me that like all those things mm-hmm. kind of came together for me around the same time like understanding the church's mother was happening at the same time that I was understanding like why the church prioritized mother 
hood. Like this is not two separate, right. like a moral question over here and a theological question over here. Mm-hmm. But on the same, at the same time, there's also many more examples in Catholicism of women who never become mothers in a biological sense, right? So, because in my Like a my shocking amount of them, right? Yeah. You know? Like most saints <laughs> weren't actually mothers, and there are plenty of mother saints. But so I, I think in, in my evangelical upbringing, there was actually more of an expectation that you need to become a literal mother or, you know, there's something kind of sad and wrong about your life. Um, whereas I think in Catholicism, it's wonderful because motherhood is so valued and I am a mother. I've got four kids. I love being a mother. It's, it's changed my life. It's a big part of my conversion, becoming a mother. Um, but at the same time, there's also this dignity to women who only have motherhood in a spiritual sense, right? Um, and who, you know, choose not to get married, right? So there seems to be even more a range of kind of freedom and in terms of what it looks like to live that out in the world in a Catholic context. Yeah. One of the, wild things that you see in the post-reformation era era is this drop in literacy among women on the european continent right because mm-hmm. there's yeah. no there's no convents anymore yeah. um in in protestantism and convents is like where educated women like are really yeah. doing their good stuff right um, and like and having doesn't produce a hildegard yeah. right hildegard hildegard i have her like up here you got her me. she's like i have a little icon of hildegard over there um, yeah, I mean, Hildegard, right? She was, know? she was incredibly influential. She went on preaching tours. If you read her letters, she's, re- you know, she's writing to the popes. This was during the investiture crisis where like a lot of priests and bishops were doing naughty things. And she is like, <laughs> I mean, sure, her letters are intense. She's like, woe to thee, you know, you're, you know, get that millstone get off your neck, you know. Um, yeah. So, and this was like what, you know, in the, in the 12th century. So, so she's predates. Yeah. She predates Albert the Great. Like, mm-hmm. um, Albert the Great is like a male version of Hildegard yeah. in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, you had mentioned well, contraception. I don't know if I, I, I do want to touch on that just for a second. That, yeah, this is a different yeah. kind of question, but I feel, I mean, it, at least in the way it's presented to us at the Coming Home Network, it's usually presented in a different context, but I think mm-hmm. that they're all related. They are um, all well, related. The, tr- the church yeah. thinks they're all related. So, well, and the, the thing that, um, shifted my view on contraception was actually realizing that the the that contraception actually imposed um imposes a masculine ideal onto the female body it basically it tells women that oh well in order to have a meaningful life or to have a successful life you need to um function as much like a man as possible in the world and so once i realized that the the, the Catholic pushback against contraception is also very much grounded in um, seeing the the female body as as something that is good and wonderful and not as a threat to well-being um, because I, I think one of the ironies in feminism is is that it's actually very suspicious of femaleness um, and it sees our capacity to become pregnant as, a problem that needs to be fixed, almost like a pathology. Uh, and so entering more into a Catholic understanding has given me a much more positive sense of my own body. I know my body so much better than I did before. Um, I feel much more in harmony with my own fertility and my own cycles. Like it's just, 
it's been really wonderful actually to get off the contraception train. So even just on a practical level, aside from the kind of like theological arguments about it, as a woman, I am much happier um, not contracepting than I was. And I was on the pill for like a decade, you know, and I don't, I don't look back wistfully at all. Like I'm just grateful um, that, that I became Catholic and suddenly it was possible to, to kind of get off the contraception train. Well, with all that, you know, contraception basically imposing a male ideal on femininity. Have you ever read, to tie all this back together, have you ever read the ending of the Gospel of Thomas, the Gnostic Gospel that was not included in the canon? I don't know. I've got this it right is like, here. This want? is like, yeah, 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 do it, do it. This is like jogging okay, so something. Okay, here we go. I don't remember. Here we go. This is, uh, <clears throat> this is brutal. This is... Uh, this is what people think the evil Catholic Church kept out of the Bible, you know, because they were afraid of ideas. Here's what Simon Peter says to Jesus. He says, let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may be a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. The end. There That's the end go. of the Gospel of Thomas. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, um, that's interesting because there's quite a lot of which is a um, Gnostic text. Yeah. So yes, well, and there's when I was a fem, you know, back when I was a feminist before I was Catholic, um, I read, you know, some feminist academics who were like, oh, the you know the sad lost Gnostic gospels, and this would have made Christianity so much better. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Because where the body is denigrated, women are denigrated. Like that's just pretty consistently true, and. One of the things I've discovered in Catholic Christianity is how much um, the body is valued as a gift and as having this this sacramental meaning. Um, and that, you know, Christianity, it's all about the body. It's like the incarnation, the resurrection, the ascension, like Christ takes his body to heaven. He doesn't like leave it, you know, like a little puppet sack that he doesn't need anymore, you know. And um, yeah, so I think... Because I think women are, we don't, we're very, I don't know, women also create bodies in our bodies, right? I mean, it's amazing. Like we can knit together another human being in our wombs. Um, and that's really wonderful. And I, I think Catholicism sees that, the importance of that, but also the, the spiritual value of that, right? Um, anyway. No, Gnosticism. Bad. Gnosticism's very bad. It rears its head in every generation. Um, yeah, it does. And uh, I mean, it's it's rearing its head in questions of maleness and femaleness in our own generation. So, mm. but we've gone on a lot. I know you have many, many things to do uh, in your capacity there, at George Fox. If our listeners want to uh, connect with you, Doctor Doctor Abigail Favale, and like find your book, perhaps, or anything else mm. uh, related to what you do, uh, where can they go? Sure. Um- I don't do social media very much. I do have a Twitter. Um, so I'm on there. I have that one, my one little pinky toe in social media just so I can kind of post things that I write, um, for people who want to track with my writing. Um, and that's at Favali Abs. Um, and my memoir, um, that Matt mentioned, Into the Deep and Unlikely Catholic Conversion, it very much goes into depth on a lot of these feminist questions because those, or woman-related questions, because those were the ones that I really wrestled with in my conversion. So if you're hungry for more of a deep dive, um, I would check that out. You can get it on Amazon. 
And then I have a new book coming out with Ignatius Press called The Genesis of Gender. Um, and so that's more, more kind of analyzing what you were just alluding to, the, the concept of gender in our time and, um, how that, that idea of gender developed and then how that paradigm compares with, um, kind of the Genesis paradigm or the Catholic paradigm. So if you're interested in those kinds of ideas, that's, that book will be released May 1st by Ignatius. Um, so yeah. there you go. And, and my little plug on top of that, not even having read it, is that neither one of you or I, uh, in our evangelical Protestant context, would have had anything approaching a compelling argument to tackle these questions because we yeah. didn't have the understanding of the body that we just been mm -hmm. talking about this whole hour yeah. uh, in, in the light of the Catholic Church. So, mm -hmm. um, well, hopefully this has been helpful to some of you listening yeah. and watching who, uh, you know, again, are feeling drawn and pulled towards the Catholic Church for whatever reason. Um, maybe it's the sacraments, maybe it's just the beauty, maybe it's something else, um, but are stuck on these questions and, and don't really get where the church is coming from when it comes to male and female on the whole mm -hmm. the whole deal. Hopefully oh, this has I'll, been helpful to you. I'll also oh, you mention got one? just one quick resource. Shot. Um, yeah. So it's called um, Cultivating Catholic Feminism. It's a video series. I wrote the content for it, um, but it was produced by the Catholic woman. It's amazing. The production quality is really good. It's totally free. If you just go to cultivatingcatholicfeminism.com, um, there are videos that go into to more detail about a lot of the things we've been talking about. So if this is genuinely something you're interested in and wrestling with, that's a really great resource and it's totally free. Well, guess what I'll be linking to in the description on yes. this particular episode. Great. All right. Well, cool stuff. And again, if you're wrestling with this and you want to talk to other people about it who are on a similar journey, come to our uh, online community and that's community.chnetwork.com. Org. Dr. Favali, thank you for joining us on CH yeah, Network Presents. Have a wonderful day. Thanks.